So we have two of my favorite people joining us today. Oh, that's so again. heartwarming. <laughs> <laughs> they have the, they have the hardest that. names. They have the hardest names to pronounce. We have Majorly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's an ancient Dene name. Is that wait? Is that actually how it's pronounced, or is it Mar- Marley? It's, it's Marley. <laughs> okay, okay. Because <laughs> like I looked at it, I was like, I've never seen that ever. So. Yeah. It's actually a super secret word. It's like Yahweh. You're not supposed to say it. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also have a, a, a recurring co-host of the show, Zit Kato. Oh. So today we're we're tackling a really interesting conversation just because we have a socialist uh, president who's coming into office <laughs> to sell off the country to China. Finally, exactly. Can we get a solidarity for my <laughs> It's going to be like, a, it's going to be a Navajo swap meet for China up here. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what's on the menu today, folks. It's Indian reservations. Are they socialist? And this this is a topic that we kind of like I, it's something that we've been discussing a lot and you know the organizing work with the red nation we often get baited uh by both people on the right and the left for being socialist and you know it's just this common theme of like you know this misunderstanding of what socialism is because socialism is always associated with the government and you know this conspiracy theory really derives i think from the white genocide a conspiracy theory or the idea of the great replacement, right? That implicitly acknowledges the, that implicitly acknowledges that the United States committed genocide against indigenous and black people through state institutions, which it did, right? And the fear that the state is turning against white settlers has become widely popular among QAnon support uh, supporters and even some in the deep state crowd through strawman arguments about multiculturalism and the so-called great replacement. Um, so they thus direct their ire at the state. Um, but we think for the wrong reasons, right? This has also led right-wingers to conflate socialism with any state policy, including among indigenous libertarians and right-wingers who view reservations as either a socialist policy or the natural tendency of the state, meaning that all states are bad and therefore all states are equal. And so the future of a socialist United States can therefore be found in Indian reservations and vice versa. And I would like to add to that, that the healthcare coverage or the healthcare uh, debate in the United States about whether or not people should be granted a fundamental human right of healthcare is often baited with, well, look at how Indian health services is administered. It's the worst, worst healthcare system in the United States, that's why we need private healthcare system. And as as a running joke in Indian communities, there are a lot of things about you know IHS as being you know their horror stories. You know IHS has experimented on uh, Native children. They've also been complicit in actual genocide against Native women by sterilize, forcefully sterilizing them, Native women and, and non men people with uh, uteruses. Um, and, you know, the, the danger is that this collapses socialism uh, and, and communism uh, or even anarchism to some degree to purely European ideology, right? 
that anything that comes out, uh, that these are all things that come out of Europe and therefore they're fundamentally bad. And we're going to talk a little bit about this. We're going to talk about uh, Karen Bodoni and the rise of a kind of right-wing conservatism in the Navajo nation that has baited uh, a lot of Navajo socialists and leftists, um, as well as talking about a really famous piece by uh, one, the one and only Russell Means, uh, who has you know this anti-communist manifesto that gets circulated every now and then, um, and it's t- entitled "For America to Live, Europe Must Die." And we'll be doing a, a close reading of that text because um, there are you know there are kernels of truth within it, and we want to be fair and we want to you know break it down and give people a better understanding of where we're coming from as leftists, as socialists, as Marxists. Um, and so, you know, this really, this really, this, this way of thinking about, you know, socialism as being the state or some kind of European ideology forgoes the successful res- uh, uh, liberation projects of the global South and the third world. And the idea that all states are bad because they result in environmental destruction and some sort of gulag prison reservation industrial complex, right? And I think this is incredibly important because what tends to happen is that while trying to attack Eurocentrism, uh, you know, uh, the the critique itself is be, is Eurocentric to say that all you know it's all nations are bad or all nations tend towards you know um, these kinds of practices, right? And so be, the major questions that we're tackling in this episode is where did the myth of socialism and Indian reservations come from? And why is it it effective propaganda? And to begin that conversation, we're going to turn it over to Marley to break down a very famous uh, Karen Bodoni Turning Turning Point USA uh, YouTube video that made the rounds this last election cycle, kind of scaremongering Navajo indigenous people but also red baiting them for you know being anything as you know milk toast as just a democrat or a liberal uh to you know people like my my friends who have actually who are actually neighbors with this person right i actually know people who are related to her but how she has become sort of a useful idiot for uh turning point usa and why these kinds of ideas are not only mobilized by the right but have some currency within certain, you know, indigenous communities and what that means for this particular moment in time. So Marley, who is Karen Bodoni? Karen Bodoni is my cousin. No, I'm just kidding. Plot twist. No. I am Karen Bodoni. I suspect I might be related clan-wise, sadly. Um, but this this story of Republicans begins many years ago. Elk, uh, um i like to think that republicans have always been here no, i'm just kidding um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah no i like so as you mentioned karen bedoni has become a puppet for turning point usa you know first running for election in i believe 2016 not winning and from there re-emerging through social media via facebook videos or youtube videos and proliferating i get like republican talking points and one of those talking points, <clears throat> excuse me, one of those talking points is pretty much that the Navajo Nation is a site of socialism, which, you know, I didn't really pay attention to at first because, you know, it was very briefly talked about here and there. You know, it was, it was something fun that we would listen to and giggle about and, and, and mention Karen Bedoni. 
And what I imagine, though, is I didn't think anything would emerge out of it until, you know, Trump won and it emboldened a lot of Navajo conservatives. Because during this time, around the same time, there was also a Navajo election where some Navajo conservatives like Sean Red, my name's Sean Red, and, um, you know, he ran, people were making fun of him just as well. And I think that's something where I've been thinking about is why Navajos make fun of conservatives, Republicans, granted, um, aren't as critical towards Democrats, but that's another just, you know, discussion. Um, point being, though, is that Republicans have been here. You know, there's been a relationship and it's generally what I understand a misinterpretation of like what indigenous self-determination means in a sense that the government is big, therefore it is bad. And therefore we need to stop the government from being bigger. Um, and that argument now kind of starts to merge recently with Karen Bodoni's Turning Point debut. Uh, from what I remember, she told me she spent about $14,000 on a 14-minute video. You and talked so, to her? No, well, I did. I did. I did. <laughs> I, well, okay, so, I guess, podcast. <laughs> so that's a rate of $1,000 a minute? That's wow. insane. Yes, wow. yes. And she, the thing, okay, so she spent, she spent that money on this. I think it was turning point. I, I want to say it's turning point. Um, wow, we're it, the it, wrong was, business. That's so. kind of like a critical support <laughs> that she wasted so much of their money. Yeah. I know, I know. I, I was like, if you gave me $14,000, I could put out a an hour's worth of content and then give you back your money. Like, and, and that's, I mean, the, the point was like, we, I, I, when I heard about it, I was like, I need to keep keep an eye out for when this comes out. I was I, I was ex- expecting like a, a big documentary, you know, about 30, 45 minutes, you know. So I was like, all right, be prepared for this. And I was telling friends of mine, who comes out, it's 14 minutes long. I watch it. I'm laughing. And I, I comment on it. And I, I give like a brief summary as to why I think the points are wrong. And I, I can go over some of those. But she engages me. You know, she's like, this was 14, we spent like fourteen hundred or $14,000 on this. Um, let's see you try to make something out of, out of four days. So it, not only was it $14,000, but it occurred over four days of filming. And most of it is like, not, it's like, not, it's, it's just interviews. So we're about to do better in that, like an hour and a half. <laughs> exactly. Right. With zero dollars. <laughs> I mean, we're like more efficient than the capitalists that are like the ones who want to be capitalists, I suppose. Um, and, and so, you know, she told me all of this and then I saw a lot of people sharing it and I was like, ah, oh, I can't, I can't let this go. So I, I, I made a podcast about it, but the, to just kind of give a brief description of her argument begins, um, the video opens and it's like one of those like zoom in videos where it's from outer space and it just shoots right into earth and it's like almost like i'm on a peyote trip and i'm like oh shit this is what it must be right here i don't know it, it, it gives this up is like yoded yeah, exactly yoded. right it, i'm like i'm fucking yoded right now um and it's got the navo like and i'm gonna say navajo but like native music going on you know and it's all spiritual and you know someone's chanting. like the flutes yes <laughs> i actually i actually thought it was the um the Savage commercial at first, I was like, did I click on the wrong link? Because it has like it has like a fire going and it's in the desert. <laughs> Featuring Johnny Depp as Tonto yeah. in turning points. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
We are the land. The new sauvage, the parfum, Dior. Johnny Depp should do a, a Turning Point USA video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't be surprised at this point. So it zooms in, and the argument He's going to become a men's rights activist. <laughs> I know, it's like, I'll, I'll never do movies again. Um, but yeah, so her argument is, and, and the title of the video is like, A Long Walk Into Socialism. And she's very confident in how she makes this argument. She talks about the westward expansion, the creation of the Navajo Nation, Nation or the Navajo Reservation in 1868 after the forced removal long walk. Um, she gets that right, but for some odd reason, it just doesn't click that that's capitalism like westward expansion is capitalism you know she just she just sees like the politics i suppose of um, a big state moving westward and doesn't doesn't make that connection you know doesn't actually and she does talk about like she does describe like the capitalist aspect of it which is like industries you know and but she doesn't she just briefly like, goes over that talks about what the reservation or at least Huelde is supposed to do which is like a Turning people into farmers, you know, she yeah. recognizes the like the, is the 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 Nebuzad word for the long walk. Yeah, it's all. It was also another Republican Snapchat name, Carl oh <laughs> Carlisle Begay named it. And got that old school. She Carlisle W Begay. She twice got niche name. He ani a bushes team. Other it does not dash a do dash another. But I Dinesh. Praise be to God and beauty that surrounds us. And we all walk in beauty. You don't ever want to name (laughs) your fucking Snapchat after that. That's like the worst thing you can do. And it demonstrates how... Republicans are not informed by their history, or they just don't make these connections, right? And so, do Republican Cherokees name their Snapchats the Trail of Tears? <laughs> Someone look into that. Uh, <laughs> genocide jokes, not funny, but kind of funny because yeah. these guys are Republicans. No, I mean, well, that's the thing, though, is it's like it's so absurd, you know, that they they're able to make this like these claims, and they're like, and they're very like confident in confident in the way that they make these claims and so you know confident is the most disgusting adjective right now (laughs) (laughs) i mean i feel like she's really like i mean she like i i listened to an interview and she said that she was like she wrote to trump and trump wrote her back granted i don't know i mean you know if that's your like god at the moment you're going to be like oh my god i'm i'm getting recognized recognize me the politics of recognition but anyways um you know so she mentions us moving back, and then this is where she starts using like the term control, and this is where it starts to relate to like the you know larger just argument of like state machinery and control, and she's she makes this weird thing about how like prior to all of this we were healthy, and I mean I thought it was going to go into like a food sovereignty thing, but it was just more of like to describe how unhealthy we are, and I was like oh okay well you know I guess, but the funny thing about it is. She recognizes, as well as most, I think, Navajo leftists recognizes, things would have been much better if 
this would have never occurred, that there was an actual process of self-determination for indigenous people to determine their own future. And there was never this puncture and this larger project of colonialism. She like, they both recognize that they both recognize that, but like that period of time, I think most of us would describe as like very, some form of communism, you know, this like pre-colonial time where things, you know, we were just hanging out, chilling, you know, doing our own thing, trying to forge our way into the future. So she does make these arguments, but doesn't realize like, hey, you're, mis- you're misattributing this project to big government while not recognizing that it's also a, a project of colonialism and capitalism. So I'm sorry, I'm like rambling, but anyways, so, you know, she keeps talking about healthy natives prior, talks about how we became dependent and really glances over the importance of treaties and the obligations. You know, it almost verges to the point where it sounds like she's saying that treaties are the reason why we're dependent on the federal government. When in reality, it's like, that's such a weird way of interpreting treaties, considering like the actual meaning and importance behind these things and the obligations that are attributed and often disregarded by Republicans as well as like Democrats, pretty much a settler state. You know, all these treaties are broken, but again, she doesn't, she doesn't talk about what I'm talking about. She just says treaties, this, and then dependency. So, you know, again, and and it's all along the logic that big government is bad. We can't allow for this. You know, this is the crux of her argument. Eventually, you know, some other, I think Republican, someone named Martinez comes in and is like, yeah, you know, the Navajo nation, it's socialism. You know, and then they talk about how the enterprises work, which, yeah, talk about how it's like rife with waste and abuse, you know, but they don't talk about the structural issues. They don't talk about the paternalism, the bureaucracy that's usually attributed to uh, the relationship, like the stipulations. And, you know, they're, they're not willing to engage in that. They're willing to focus very on these, but by, by, by focusing on waste and abuse, what they really mean is, oh, it's certain people that are doing certain things bad when it's like, well, this is a structural issue, you know, going to education. Now, this is the funny part with like the education system is like, it's the classic, as I understand it, classic, like Republican argument where it's like, this is liberal education. They're turning us into communists. You know, she, she makes that argument, you know, and by connecting it to uh, a much larger issue of like tribes, not really being able to control their education or where that funding comes from, or the fact that there's a lack of funding for tribes. You know, as I understand it, most uh, funding for public school comes from property tax as well as it's a mixture of like state and federal government. But, you know, in the, in the Navajo nation, there's really not (laughs) property, um, which goes into their argument again, saying we need private property as if, as if that's going to solve all the issues Um, and going along with, Okay, go ahead, there's go ahead. a history. Yeah, there's a history to that. And like the the opening up of reservations or the privatization of land and, and reservations, there were two fundamental policies that were incredibly detrimental. One was allotment. And and I think I think she actually lives in the checkerboard, you know, region of allotment in, in the Eastern Navajo Nation. And that was in the turn. That was at the, the late 19th century. And that was a policy that was implemented to basically privatize uh, land or create a, a pathway of citizenship through property ownership by allotting lots of land 
to individual uh, families, indigenous families, uh, to the to the point where they they would become independent and autonomous after a certain point of time, and then be declared emancipated, like that was a legal term, declared citizenship, and then they gained the right to alienate that property. Right? They didn't really gain the right to hold it in perpetuity. They gained the right to alienate it to somebody else who could go out and buy it, and that's why you get like this phenomenon of of fractionation. And most Indian reservations, uh, especially the large ones that were um, allotted. And then the second one is termination. The, uh, those, that's the language of privatizing Indian land. Like it was called termination because they under, they, were, they weren't like back in the day in the, in the, in the 40s and the 50s, they weren't, working, they weren't concerned about PC language. It was like, yeah, we're going to terminate tribes. What does termination mean? It means liquidating all of the tribal assets, which includes the land itself. And opening it up for private, you know, corporations to come in and privatize the land. Um, and we saw the effects of this, the deleterious effects of this in places like the Menominee Nation, which was open. You know, they had one of the most successful lumber mills. They had not, you know, essentially nationalized that industry within Menominee. And they were targeted for termination. And so when they were terminated, all those resources were just divided up amongst different lumber mills in that area and bankrupted not just the collective resources of the the uh the lum or the menominee people but also bankrupted individuals right uh, who lost their their livelihood and i think the other example of it too i think it's it's really important uh to think about because it's not really thought of as an example but back in you know the in the i think it was in 1920 the tulsa race massacre that was actually they call it black wall street but in fact, most of those uh, people who had uh, collected or um, amalgamated their wealth, their social wealth into a community collective fund were actually Afro-Indigenous allottees who took money they had made from farming and also oil leases on their land and created a community fund and created a community-like business that centered like Afro-Indigenous uh, people who were either categorically excluded from certain benefits from their tribes, or they were categorically excluded from white society. And white people actually came in there to break up that, that communal kind of ownership of wealth. And that's why they got attacked, right? And that's not something we really think about. But this is what she's saying, like when she's saying like, we need to open it up for private industry, we need to privatize there, like there's this government oversight in reality, like there do, there still exists on many reservations and tribal communities, kind of collectively or communally pooled resources. No, yeah, exactly. I think, and, and it's it's these arguments of private property. There's like some to them. There's some weird antagonism, or there's a relation between freedom and private property, and a it's it's a negative relationship to the state. And they do make these comments, but it's like they don't understand the history of private property and the privatization of land that it's very violent and you know anybody listening to this can actually go up to or google like navajo nation eastern agency map and just see how fractionalized it is and a lot of those areas have to deal with like white um livestock interests or the the growing um extractive industries that are in that area that indigenous people are pushing back against and, yeah, and she is yeah there's like uranium mining there's coal mining there's oil rigs, there's fracking rigs. Like if you drive through Eastern Agency, you can literally see like the oil derricks from like the 1920s. 
and then you see like the seesaw pumps and then you see like the modern day fracking rigs you can literally see the generations of extractive industries in this area because they've exploited the privatization and the fractionation of this land i went there once and it was like it was wild like you literally see a peabody coal mine you see like uh you know the old uranium mines that they had and it's all just within this area and not only is it within that area it's actually within the area of a of a world heritage site chaco canyon right one of the oldest um remaining or one of the old it's considered one of the oldest i think it is the oldest settlement in uh in north or in the western hemisphere i could be wrong on that but this is the area that she's talking about and that and where she lives yeah i i imagine like a tour guide saying if you look here you can see the oil and if you look over here oh there's chaco canyon um it's it's very yeah and it's because of this like fractionalization it opens it up and you know she thinks private property is going to solve all the problems it's going to be a, a means of freedom for indigenous, or I guess in Navajo Nation, because I doubt she thinks beyond indigenous or beyond Navajo people. Um, and and that's like that's as far as like I understand. She talks about enterprises, you know, and she's like they're not producing enough. They're like industries for the state, the Navajo Nation. Granted, there's really not much citations, you know, and like one thing that's like going on during this is that like the Navajo Nation had to sue Trump to get CARES Act money. And currently, like, like, I think months after it was supposed to be $8 billion that were supposed to be coming to the Navajo. And it was delayed, I think, like 80 days, almost three months. Um, and the Navajo Nation had to sue Trump's administration to release it. And now we're currently sitting at like 600 and I believe 32 deaths, I want to say, um, you know, around that area of Navajo people who have died. And there's like this issue that they don't make this connection. She thinks Trump's going to invigorate small businesses, you know, which I'm like, isn't that socialism? If the government like gives you money, you know, like based on that logic, like, you know, they don't, they don't interrogate their own logic pretty much. Um, And and, and uh, if you're watching, if you're listening to this and you're interested, this is like, like the first seven and eight minutes. I, I chose not to go beyond that because in my opinion, it gets personal. There's personal stories about like um, what I imagine are the violences of capitalism and colonialism, not the violence of socialism. Um, and it, it becomes poverty porn at that point. And it just doesn't, you know, doesn't feel right to talk about. But, you know, so like that, that's as far as at least their argument goes, so that the Navajo Nation reproduces socialism because the big government is part of the larger government. I don't, I mean, it, I, I've, I, preparing for this, I tried to understand the logic and, the best I could say is for them, large government is bad. It's socialism. When the government does things, it's socialism. Granted, you know, they're, they cited like a Webster's Dictionary. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily <laughs> think we would. I, I, like, there's a little bit more nuanced take to socialism. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, and they don't recognize that Trump actually targeted, targeted a lot of like um, tribal nations, like try to de- shit what's the word what's the word i'm looking for in the east coast um oh he basically tried to remove federal recognition yeah exactly um, he tried to terminate (laughs) (laughs) the official language is terminate he tried literally tried to terminate right and and you know he didn't re he didn't re-sign the vawa act you know he put this like shitty ass like group of people together which i from what i remember didn't have any representation from indigenous people to begin with you know and and like a lot of the issues in Eastern Agency, you know, his administration kind of pushed for, allowed for 
you know, interest in those areas to kind of double down and possibly materialize. Um, so, you know, that's, that's Karen Benali. I'm sorry. No, Karen Bedoni, potentially my relative. I'm, I'm very embarrassed, but I have to deal with it. Um, and you know, if you want to check it out, I, I, I would, I, I suggest don't even watch, don't give it views for the most part. Um, actually, but you know, it's, it's, the argument is just that the reservation of sites of socialism, which I think that's what we're here to discuss is whether or not that's true. Personally, I don't think that's true. Um, but you know, let's open it up. I was going to say, I thought we had a call line. We're like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. right, open the call lines. There is no call yeah, line. We got about yeah. three different calls on the line. We're going to open <laughs> yeah. it up in South Dakota. Yeah, somebody, yeah, somebody from uh, Karen, someone named Karen from Four Corners is calling. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> well, okay. So, like, I, I'll be honest, I didn't watch the whole thing either. I got like about seven. I started watching those clips where they talk about personal stories, and it, it, it is, it's really exploitative. I mean, you know, like I'll just read the quotes from the show, the the show note or the YouTube notes, and I I'm not going to even post the link to this because it's such trash. But if you want to look it up, it's called "A Long Walk in Socialism" by Turning Point USA. But here's some quotes: Socialism took my brother Albert, Navajo business owner. I didn't realize how corrupt things were. My peers, they live in poverty and they don't even know it. Lo lo ora. Young Navajo entrepreneur. If you can control healthcare, you can control the population. Elisa, Navajo community activist. And so there is, I mean, like what you said, it's like socialism took my brother. I imagine there's some kind of horrific backstory to it. I don't have the the capacity to watch that kind of thing. I don't have the bandwidth to watch that kind of thing because I know where it goes. But I do think that you bring up interesting points to say that like you know, the, the several of the things that you touched on, like this kind of in, you know, I think we should elaborate a little bit more because it gets into the next discussion, but I think we should talk about what this means is there is a, an organic anti-statism within the indigenous communities for the exact reasons that Marley just brought up. You know, the government implemented these genocidal policies. That's true, right? That is absolutely true. and they were a result, you know, like in the case of the Navajo Long Walk, they were a result of Civil War era policy, right? When the Army of the West, which, you know, split up, I think it was like it had like five different regions, like five different command zones, much like how the U.S. military has five command regions across the world now. Uh, and the majority of, uh, a, a or excuse me, a significant amount of the Union Army that was fighting during the Civil War was actually fighting on the Western frontier, right? And so even within this narrative of like Republicans, you know, being responsible for emancipating African-American slaves and or enslaved African people uh, within the plantation economy from the South, and even within this other, you know, conversation that Republicanism represents the anti-socialist tendency. The Navajo Long Walk literally happened under a Republican administration. <laughs> like it doesn't get, and also the other atrocities, whether it's the Sand Creek Massacre, the massacre at Whitestone Hill, the hanging, the mass hanging of thirty-eight Dakota uh, uh, patriots um, in Makato or Mankato after the Dakota Uprising, like those happened under a Republican administration. 
and during you know the U.S. civil or the the Civil War, and so like it's it's just funny to me, like that this becomes you know like this becomes the kind of the talking point of it. It's like actually this was like Abraham Lincoln's plan. Like he implemented, you know, he gave the orders to Kit Carson to round up Navajo people and imprison them at Fort Sumner. All right, so I'm dying to talk. Oh, good. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> hit the hand raise, hit the hand oh. raise button. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I, did, I guess that I didn't realize that's what it's like. <laughs> but, uh, so I think, uh, just to play devil's advocate here, if I was the right winger, the easy response to that is the party switch platforms, which is what everybody talks about. Because the Democrats use it as an excuse as to why, oh, we might have been the ones who were for slavery, but, you know, whatever. You know, they do they do this whole, like, uh, they, they create this mythology where, like, one party wasn't racist and the other one was. But in reality, both of them supported slavery up until it was so uh, inconvenient. Uh, what's a, it's an irreconcilable uh, contradiction within the society, uh, and so the state has to take over. And the most ultimate example of that is uh, civil war. And I think like Marx outlines that in civil war in France, and then of course Lenin and state and revolution. Um, but <laughs> just to break out some theory here, uh, <laughs> uh, but like they—that's where they sort of like they—they uh, they use these mythologies and like to speak more on the point of uh, uh, private property, like making you freer that comes from like the founding fathers uh being landowners and this mythos of the land owning your own land and having a say over your own land what, you know ultimately makes you the freest person um uh, i think that's where it mostly stems from uh that's just like my own like uh there's enough right wingers in my family from pine ridge to have a good idea of what they think is uh freedom <laughs> Like one of them went to Sturgis and I was just like, oh my goodness, <laughs> you're an idiot. Yeah. There's too much freedom in South Dakota. There is so too much, much freedom, freedom in South Dakota. People are dying from it. <laughs> Navajo people are like, give us some of your freedom over here. We need some. Oh God. Well, and then like also with the, the whole story of like, I lost my brother to socialism. I think you get a similar story out of people who lost family under, you know, Dick Wilson. They say that was socialism as well. Uh, even though <laughs> from clearly looking at his policies, it's more realistically fascist. <laughs> you know, like it's, um, but uh, one of the most infamous speeches for indigenous socialists is, of course, from Russell Means, with the, uh, for America to live, Europe must die. And uh, Oglala Lakota's from Pine Ridge. Uh, well, he's an Oglala Lakota from Pine Ridge, for those of you who don't know. I hope a lot of you know who Russell Means is, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Uh, but he... This quote that uh, is often used by right-wingers anar anarchists, which is weird, um, to sort of deny any legitimacy communism has in indigenous cultures. Uh, the line uh, that I often get quoted at me is, capitalists at least can be relied upon to develop uranium as fuel only at the rate at which they can show a good profit. <laughs> which that sentence alone does a lot of work. <laughs> like a lot of leg work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> reliable capitalists well i'm just saying to show a good profit I, they'll mind the shit out of anything that won't affect them because it's showing a good profit you know what i mean like, the lot his whole argument doesn't even actually defend the capitalists because you can still extrapolate from there that it's showing a good profit which is why we now have extreme you know climate change effects occurring and, you know the world's dying um 
but that's their ethic. And may, this is how he continues. That's their ethic. And maybe uh, they will buy sometime. Uh, oh, and then maybe they will buy sometime. What? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, well, he's what he's saying is that like that's their ethic, and maybe they will buy. Uh, they will buy some time, meaning that like they'll buy some time for e- like global ecological collapse. And so, like, the, there's oh. inherent innovation in capitalism, right, oh. to even address things like cap- uh, climate change. That's what, oh, like, like that's sea barriers and seasteads. Yeah. yeah, but also and like using switching the Northwest Passage that's going to open up once the ice caps melt. Yeah, and also like the fact that like uranium is like some kind of like alternative non-carbon alternative that's you know obviously that didn't happen but anyways (laughs) um so he continues marxist on the other hand can be relied upon to develop uranium fuel as rapidly as possible simply because it's the most efficient production fuel available uh that's their ethic and i fail to see uh where it's preferable like i said marxism is right smack in the middle of european tradition it's the same old song uh and as someone who's from pine red and is a lot of lakota uh there's a lot to be said here and as somebody who is a declared Marxist-Leninist, is that does that mean I've become Europeanized in my thinking? Or uh, I, I think it's more likely ultimately quotes like this showcase an interesting dichotomy of the U.S. Uh, and like these material conditions are more comfortable for me just because it's personal and I don't really know like much about other communities, I guess. Uh, but the same sentiment can be seen from ANCAPs and libertarians, which Russ is. Uh, and that sentiment is, is a, like an anti-government, or I prefer uh, anti-tyranny. And uh, I choose the term anti-tyranny because, like I said earlier, it sort of encapsulates uh, the same language the fa- founding fathers used. Uh, and um, ultimately, conservative conservatism aims to uh, keep an idealized version of the past that more often than not never truly existed or only existed in part for white settlers. Um, and so like beginning in this era is honestly a lot easier, uh, than trying to dispel this false economy of, wait, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> uh, to the right, the founding, fa- I'm just going to skip that. <laughs> to the right, the founding fathers fought a brave revolution against all odds, won the hearts of the American people, defeated the greatest military in the world at that time. But in reality, if you read uh, Nathaniel Philbrick's book, Eye of the Hurricane, he outlines that. Uh, the American Revolution was nothing more than a distraction and a much larger and arguably considered a world war that was the culmination of the Hundred Years' War between Britain and France. Spain was involved, a bunch of other uh, Danish were. Everybody was involved in this. And so, like, the U.S. was just sort of like a distraction, which is why the British, you know, hardly ever paid any attention to it. And uh, it wasn't until, like, a blind stroke of luck that they were able to, you know, win a battle finally. And then France was like, all right, we'll give you a shot. You know, and so it, it 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 never happened how they say it did. And sure, there was some like you, grim odds, but it was because it was a stupid revolution that um, uh, was fought to fight a king's tyranny. But you know, nobody ever asks what was that tyranny. We always think, oh, it's the taxation without representation. You know, and to me, that just sort of sounds like uh, the feudal colonial era's taxation is that. You know. Mm-hmm. And uh, could it be that Madison? Oh, go on. Well, no, I was going to say it's just like this this idea that the Revolutionary War was fought for ideas, right? And that like there were these high minded people, British colonists, right, who had a more perfect like society in mind, 
and that there were no material interests, right, to be kept in place. And I'm sure you're going to get into it, but it's like, this is, this is the difference between, and this is the difference between like idealism and materialism, right? Is that there's this idea that like, oh, they had this like, you know, grand idea about everyone being uh, free and, you know, uh, citizens of this country, even though they couldn't exactly create that system at that moment in time, the aspiration was there, right? <laughs> this is like the taxation. At least they thing. thought about it. It's the yeah. thought that counts, right? States' rights, right? States' rights. <laughs> and to me, it's like, is Madison in his ilk just Rothbard and Hayek for the feudal colonial, like the end of the feudal colonial era? era? And I, I highly suggest everyone listen to Unci- the Uncivil podcast. I think it's a, I don't know who did it. But uh, <laughs> essentially, British Parliament, around the time that the revolution's about to pop off, began discussing the end of slavery. Uh, and without representatives in the government, the U.S. couldn't argue why their economies needed slavery to maintain the current level of profits. So like Texas, the U.S. primarily seceded for slavery. You know, uh, And as well, uh, at this time, British had agreed to uh, cease moving past the Appalachian Mountains and like... Uh, expanding as much as they were because they were like okay yeah we did take a lot of land you're right we have some agreements in place maybe we should start honoring and so you know the u.s economically the at least settlers idea of what needs to happen is that they need to expand west for more money you know that's where the gold is that's where the lumber is that's where the furs are yada 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 and then you uh you have this whole we need the slavery in order to maintain our agricultural sector and so, you know, there's not a whole lot of trades going on in this time. So these are the, you know, oil of the era. These, especially wood, good lumber, uh, didn't exist in Britain anymore. So it was super valuable, especially old growth here in Michigan. Like, uh, one of the reasons we don't have so many old growth forests is because Ford, uh, up until Ford, you know, that's how long they've been mining all of the old growth forests was up until Ford was coming in here and starting to chop it down for Model T's. Which is crazy that there was so much trees here and so big of trees that all the way up until another, you know, racist came in to steal from indigenous lands that you you have um, an exercise of uh, freedom, I guess you could say, <laughs> according yeah, to right wingers. Yeah, there's like two things here that are like incredibly important that kind of get to that this kind of anti-statist statism i guess it would be called like one is that somehow the monarchy is this tyrannical form of government because it's going to unilaterally impose an abolition of slavery and thus you know remove the material benefits of a certain class right of landowners primarily like the the founders of the of the republic um and because they were clamoring for and you can read uh the kind of revolution of 1776 by gerald horn which you know, he, ta- he makes this argument. He's like, American Revolution only happened to maintain the system of uh, African slavery and the African slave trade because the, uh, you know, even people like Hamilton, like Alexander Hamilton, who's now understood as a slaver himself, you know, grew up in a, in a, a he's, you know, Puerto, he, uh, an area called Puerto Rico, which the only reason if you were white and you grew up there was because you were part of a white slave owning plantation family, right? <laughs> So this idea that he's this like migrant that came in, they made this musical about him is completely false. Uh, we actually did an episode on this um, with Roxanne Dunbar Tees. But the other element of it is that there were also these 
populous movements among uh, Anglo or English settlers and English colonists to move west of the Appalachian Mountains to break this, the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which was an alliance between like the Ohio River Valley uh, indigenous nations and then the nations of the north that were keeping in check this like aggressive, you know, militarist uh, colony of of the of the British Empire that was like clamoring for land and you know expansion westward. And the Constitution, right, was created uh, as not as a system that was going to be keep checks and balances of a over you know of a overextended government, but in fact created a fiscal military state that created a strong army at the center of it to basically kill Indians. Right, everyone agreed that the only that it was a merger of the populist interest of Indian hating and and westward expansion with the you know the alliance of keeping intact. Uh, the the system of African slavery, as well as creating a federal system that would work in the best interests of this kind of like, you know, this populist uh, uprising of, of settlers moving westward, right? So they would go in and, and squat on territory and then call in the military when Indians defended themselves, right? And that's their, that's their kind of like, quote unquote, anti-statist statism. They're against the tyrannical, you know, sovereign that lives in a different sea. Simply, what they wanted is they wanted a system of government, a government that would defend them when they did something illegal, right? <laughs> like, which was like trespassing into indigenous territory. <laughs> exactly. And so like this anti-government zeal is like pure propaganda and it's stewed from the deepest pits of anti-communism, honestly, now, at least after the cold war period, especially. Uh, and the false equation of socialism is when government does stuff. Uh, somehow prevent this, like there's a hex or something that prevents right-wingers from seeing that, well, at least applying this layman's logic to of socialism when the government does stuff to the military. And so even then they still uphold that as like, oh, these are the people who are like fighting for our freedom to continue to do these things. And so then you see this, uh, we want a government that will allow us to do illegal things continued on to our military where like um, there's shirts that say, uh, better to be judged by 12 than to die by uh, Iraqi. And that's a pretty messed up shirt to be selling to soldiers, but there they are. They're saying, go ahead and make war crime, do war crimes instead of dying from, you know, people were invading. Uh, which, that, like, I don't know if you've seen that shirt on Twitter yet, but uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely, imperialism is a... Uh, racket a uh, profit racket so uh and now you start seeing this mistruth applied to people like hillary clinton uh being called a socialist you know that eats babies or whatever from the QAnon people the paradigm of absolute control and that's why we're just out here doing simple things pointing out that we're meant to be in nature and be natural and this is where we find the source that god made to transcend the new world order and that's why they want to try to keep us out of it i'm angry I have them on video. 
policies uh, would have mimicked a slightly more progressive Reaganite who would have given lip service to AIDS uh, instead of exasperating the pandemic. And, well, what the, is that what it was called? Was it labeled a pandemic? I think it was an epidemic. epidemic. In fact, like that's the word. Quick aside. Tony Fauci or Anthony Fauci uh, oh, no. was also under uh, under Reagan at that time and, you know, was part of the <sighs> conspiracy to cover up uh, AIDS. Or the the severity of AIDS. I think he believed in it, but he was he he was part of that. So that was like yeah, an so interesting segue. I think Hillary Clinton would definitely fall into a Fauci type uh, you know, mentality because she would only do it if it was socially and politically convenient. Cause if everybody remembers in two thousand eight, uh she explicitly ran against gay marriage because Obama was gonna be mm. so, you know, she positioned herself as the moderate. She's always done that, and it's because you know, Clinton's, the uh, Clintonite politics is just Reagan rebranded for Democrats. Uh, and uh, so um, the more yoded part of my presentation, uh, and that's Alex Jones. Can we get an <laughs> Alex Jones clip here? <laughs> See the frogs. And yeah. to, to me, he's the epitome of right-wing anti-tyranny. I mean, it's almost a caricature he plays, which I think he is accurate. And he understands what he's doing. Um, and this concept of taxation being theft is ultimately a co-optation of left-wing dialogue, that being capitalism stuff, mm-hmm. uh, or like when your capitalist boss takes you know, wages. Yeah, <laughs> that that whole you know theoretical concept I don't want to go into a whole spiel about right now. <laughs> I hope you just know about it. Uh, so now let us. Uh, uh, so the uh, oh, what was it? Where was it? Uh, <laughs> of course, that's the most boiled down version of the left-wing theory. Uh, but that's sort of the point of the right-wing antithesis. So, like, antithesis. I don't know why I said it. Uh, <laughs> and that's that, like, we we have a legitimate, I, I would say a legitimate claim towards anti-governmentness because um, it, it it's the complete, pol- uh, like, sociopolitical, you know, uh, analysis. Whereas uh, the right-wing version of it um, is focusing only on a social part while still maintaining support for the current government. You know, like I've heard, I still respect the office, even if, you know, there's a Democrat and stuff. And these are people who say that they would go form a homestead or whatever, so they can defend themselves once Biden comes, you know? Uh, So it's just a, you know, it's a weird mentality to see because there's no logical consistency. And so, like, uh, I, I turn to Mao in this, where he says, the universality or absoluteness of contradiction has a twofold meaning. One is that contradiction exists in the process of development of all things, and the other is that in the process of de- development of each thing, a movement of opposites exists from beginning to um, And this quotes from Mao's universality of contradiction, uh, which perfectly encapsulates the cycles uh, that naturally occur throughout most of nature, which is like the waves come and go. Uh, and two storms collide and then will eventually resolve into like a new day or whatever. 
you know, and so these natural concepts are easy, can explain how uh, ideas form society, like go throughout society, and that there's often a struggle, you know, whether it's like a civil war or what have you. Um, and uh, these natural metaphors serve to give uh, a political, like show the political economy uh, as we see feudalism go to colonialism, go to capitalism, then just socialism and hope communism uh and uh there are of course differences but uh the difference is always based in a particular contradiction right uh <laughs> which is why i paraphrase mao and say the universality exists within particular okay and that's that because because we can look at a specific material conditions like say china or say north korea or say here in america and they have to have their own experiment go on their own social uh, socially scientific experiment um that in itself exemplifies this idea of the universality of contradiction that there will be contradictions in that society that are similar but unique if that all makes sense <laughs> well let's let's break it down a little bit because this is like this is dialectics and some i think dialectics sometimes are overused and abused but basically, like these, I think these quotes are really good at showing how no matter what kind of development, if it's towards progress, towards like more equality, or even towards more authoritarian kind of forms of government, contradictions arise in the sense that like, you know, it almost becomes Orwellian in the sense where like freedom becomes, you know, freedom is slavery, et cetera, et cetera. But in this case, you have people who are being anti-status but yet nonetheless upholding the state as a legitimate kind of force in society and i think no better example exists than blue lives matter right blue lives matter is an entire reaction to the black lives matter movement uh that was taken up by the same right-wing movement that a generation ago was fighting battles like at Waco or Ruby Ridge, right? Even though Waco itself wasn't a right-wing like compound or anything like that, it nonetheless became an icon, right? Or even somebody like, you know, uh Timothy McVeigh who became a right-wing terrorist in, you know, the who committed the Oklahoma City bombing, um, you know, imagined, you know, he uh, waging a, a war against the United States government, you know, that's very much encapsulated in something like the Turner Diaries, right? that predicts this, you know, coming race war and, you know, the uh, black people and Jewish people like control the government and they are, you know, they are like trying to implement socialism. Right. And where this new kind of ideology arises is that the right wing, gov the right wing kind of movement is still against the government in some ways, but is, is upholding the most, you know, the most uh, kind of militarized faction of government support or the most violent form of government uh, uh force and power and that's the police right because they see the police as protecting them from the eventual kind of like they see them as a, the a legitimate form of government to essentially destroy black lives matter or black you know black movements and also to destroy anything that that's coming out of the left right and so that's the kind of contradiction right of being an anti-statist statist I think Blue Lives Matter encapsulates that uh, more than any other, you know, any other kind of movement in this moment, because there's even I, don't, I was reading the Washington Post the other day and they were talking about this alliance between 
uh, gun rights uh, activists and the police. And it's like, yeah, of course, like, you know, there's there's a reason why they say cops and Klan go hand in hand. Uh, and the fact that many police officers themselves are, you know, uh, engaged in, you know, extracurricular or off uh, duty. Extracurricular. Yeah, extracurricular. <laughs> I was using scare quotes. You can't see it, but that that's, that's the way I understand these particular, uh, these particular quotes. And it, the same goes on the, on, you know, on the left. And when you develop a socialist society, contradictions arise and they have their own kind of character. But in, in, for the purposes of this conversation, I think it's important to look at the U S context and like how you can get like certain affinities between, you know, like so-called like libertarian thinking that actually upholds like a statist approach to things. Well, one of the best examples is sort of like stems from Rothbard, at least, uh, where like austerity is somehow hailed as a good thing that's going to inspire people right. to like raise themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, but in reality, it's killing people and has been you know, since its implementation, extreme implementation by you know, Reagan. And, you know, when you claim to be against tyranny, yet support the murder of protesters under the guise of self-defense, what tyranny do you actually oppose? Mm-hmm. You, like the protesters are... Uh, are out there again, like protesting against police brutality and rampant violence that plagues poor communities, uh, and tar- mainly target black people at a higher rate than the rest of the country. And uh, politicians would rather play games with voters' lives over getting tax tax cuts for their friends uh, than to help the American public, you know, in any shape or form. Uh, and in a time where indigenous and black communities are affected the most by this pandemic. Uh, not due to blankets, but because there's not adequate health care in the right. richest country in history. That is the new form of the small block, is poverty. You know, it's, and that's always been the case. Is if you've been impoverished, you cannot get health care. You're the most likely to die. You know, at least back in times of plagues, there wasn't as much better health care that a king could get, but he's still getting health care when, you know, the average peasant probably won't know. I don't really know. Um, <laughs> I don't really study medieval Europe that much. Um, and so the right wing claims that by upholding the status quo, they are maintaining an anti-government position. Uh, but for what? Because they don't want to pay taxes that help people they deem unworthy or undesirable and would, uh, rather opt to go to war than help the poor. I think that's a two. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I think it is. I think Marley has a question here. <laughs> oh, no, I, I was just going to say, I, I think. This this idea of like anti-state status helps me understand, at least like contextualize Karen Bedoni and some of the folks that I see with that because I, I would take it further and just say that like they're they would rather talk in like I mean I, I usually think along the terms of like tribal sovereignty but they're willing to like bypass tribal sovereignty and dismantle that state and yet kind of maintain the colonial state like the u.s government like they're they could care less about the navajo nation government and they never really talk about self-determination or tribal sovereignty and to me that like speaks to this idea of like anti-state status where in that case they're also like anti-indigenous states but they're willing to concede or at least maintain the political force of the u.s state because you know, I've seen some, I've seen her, I think I saw her post where she like, due to like, you know, uh, Biden winning the election, she was calling up on a Facebook, on a Facebook post of hers. And thankfully I haven't engaged in her yet because she hasn't blocked me. But, you know, while I was still like can see things, um, you know, she was calling upon Trump to use the Patriot Act to like 
solve this issue, you know? And that's like calling upon like military action, espionage, surveillance, and all these other things that are tied to that. And I mean, and and, and I think that's why I, I'm finding this very useful to at least understand and, and to like provide some kind of theory to like understanding Navajo Republicans and how like they're willing to talk about freedom and whatnot, but they're never like, hey, let's talk about tribal sovereignty, you know, or let's talk about the Navajo Nation. No, they're just like, let's bypass that, get rid of it, and go straight to like the U.S. Constitution, supposedly. Well, then that like makes me like wonder is like right wingers like Russell Means who actually did you know do activist work against like you know good things like he did good work against good things. Well, I mean he was at least there. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, he, uh, I wonder what he would have done at no DAPL. Like, what, what would he have said? You know, because <laughs> like, there was obviously a heavy left wing stance there. So would he, would he have gone to say, no, this is actually a good thing? You know, like, because I, I could see that argument being made is that it's a good thing because oil is going to put money back into the uh, economy of the reservation and give us jobs and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Well, I, don't, I think he would. I think he would be against, you know, the pipeline itself because it's it's a weird thing. Like, and I'll talk about. I'll, yeah, I want you to finish this thing, but I think like it, it's a. Well, weird I, that is that was it. That was oh, it. that We're was done it. Okay, it. yeah. So it's all free flow <laughs> okay. from here. It's all gravy, baby, from here on out. <laughs> gravy. <baby. laughs> well, like one of the things that I find really fascinating about Russell Means is that he, you know, he's like a hardcore ideological. And very dogmatic libertarian, but also upholds this kind of very fascinating like environmentalism, you know. And so I think I think he would side with sovereignty, you know, with uh with tribal sovereignty in the in the case of um Standing Rock, because it you know he he was making and uh, you know this is this gets into my my portion uh, my uh, brief notes on this. Is that you know Russell made this speech for America to live, Europe must die, in July of 1980, and it was at the Black Hills uh, gathering, out just outside of the Ellsworth Air Force Base. For those of you who are familiar with the geography, it wasn't technically in the Black Hills; it was in the foothills, and there were you know thousands of people who gathered there, and it it brought together this you know, what uh, Zoltan Grossman calls this unlikely alliance between ranchers, cowboys, landowners, you know, white landowners, basically settlers, right? And indigenous nations and indigenous groups, and as well as environmental groups, because there was this push to create, you know, what he says in the speech, a national sacrifice zone, a national sacrifice area in the Black Hills for America's energy needs, such as you know, uranium mining and coal uh, development or coal coal mining as well. And, you know, we can see similarities to that today with Trump or with, a, or excuse me, getting them all mixed up now, with Obama calling for American energy independence in his administration. And actually... I was about to say one of those white guys, but yeah, <laughs> that's like, the one guy I can't say yeah. that with. I mean, I think, well, I, don't, I don't want to say anything, but... Uh, <laughs> Obama, you know, he he pushed this energy policy of American energy independence, which was above, uh, you know, above uh, all of the above energy policy, which mean develop or which meant developing domestic oil and gas supplies, as well as you know any kind of carbon energy 
that was available alongside any green energies that existed as well. And so the reason why you have something like the Dakota Access Pipeline even being built in the first place and zero opposition from the Obama administration is because it fell within his domestic energy policy, right? That's why he went against Keystone XL because it crossed an international border, uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, because it's coming from the tar sands. And Dakota Access was actually, you know, a domestic oil pipeline transporting frac uh, oil. And some of that was actually from Fort Berthold, the Indian reservation. So could you stretch it and say this was an America first policy? Yes, exactly. You know, that is exactly what it is. I, I would say that, like, when it comes to energy and oil and gas development, Obama was more energy first than Trump was because Trump didn't care. Trump was Trump's policy. We went from energy independence to, to uh, energy dominance, right? Unleashing American energy dominance on the world. And that's why he was pro KXL because it didn't, you know, I mean, Canada is just a surrogate nation of the United States at this point, right? It's the sub-imperial kind of brother of U.S. empire, right? And, you know, the Alberta tar sands, like when, when uh, Trudeau met with uh, Biden's transi- transition team, the only thing Trudeau That's cared already about, happened? Oh, yeah. It already oh happened. Oh, my gosh. The I'm so out of the loop. The only thing that was on their, their meeting agenda was to discuss Biden's approval of the Keystone XL pipeline, which Biden has, you know, come out against. And where I'm going with all of this is that this there these are parallel i mean you know it's not useful sometimes to compare historical eras but these are two parallel historical eras right you have the energy crisis of the 1970s you're coming out of it you're looking for new forms of energy you have the creation of uh uh cert the council of energy resource tribes um that are asserting uh you know resource nationalism like you have peter mcdonald you know in the navajo nation who's trying to nationalize their oil and gas industries. Um, you also have this mass push to develop the Western kind of uh, energy resource corridor in the Great Plains and, and the Black Hills was part of that. Uh, this is the this is an era. This is like an, an extremely important era, right? Uh, of like energy politics, and he's giving this speech in this you know in this in this really tense geopolitical kind of climate, right? The 1980s, you you know, you have the the kickoff of like uh, leftist kind of uprisings within Latin America, Central America specifically, and he's giving this talk, uh, you know, as somebody who's no longer actually affiliated with the American Indian movement. He actually left the American Indian movement at this point in time, but nonetheless, this speech has become kind of synonymous with uh, American Indian movement ideology, which I would say it wasn't entirely the case, right? And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there's a tendency to collapse the politics of red power and, uh, you know, these movements with individuals like Russell Means. And he, I think he was actually very clear that he wasn't speaking on behalf of the American Indian, even though it's taken, it's taken uh, as like a, as a statement on behalf of the movement itself, which it wasn't. And why he wasn't is because the American Indian movement was very much aligned with like leftist and socialist governments. American Indian movement wasn't, didn't consider itself leftist or socialist by any means, definitely anti-imperialist and definitely a national liberation struggle, but not, you know, not akin to the same, holding the same kind of ideology. And so this is like where the speech arises, you know, he, 
he there's thousands of people that have gathered some of them you know were from the rcp usa the revolutionary communist party of the of the usa uh you know baba vakian's group i think baba vakian was still the leader back then too I, I don't really know rcp usa history um but nonetheless they had taken a very kind of like i would just say uh, it's not even orthodox it's just it's it's a reductionist form of marxism and like viewing things as stages there's this whole conversation that happens you know between people like ward churchill and other indigenous you know i, I mean and other indigenous not including ward churchill because he's not indigenous other indigenous thinkers at this time about the utility of marxism for indigenous struggle and you can read the book it's called native americans and marxism it's pretty good i think it's you should still read it. it it's kind of trash in its conclusions but nonetheless it gives you an idea of what was being talked about at that time period and the response like what actually russell means is responding to and he's actually responding to this really reductionist version of historical materialism and dialectical materialism that these white leftists you know, we're espousing from the RCP USA, just saying really racist and, you know, stupid things like kind of the proto arguments about native people developing, you know, ethno states and this kind of crap, right. And doing what to Europeans, what they did to them. This is like bizarre stuff. It's not, it's not really worth your time to read, but this is what he's responding to. So it's important to put that into a little bit of historical context. And also to say that, you know, years later, Russell Mean ran for the vice president uh, on the vice presidential ticket for the Libertarian Party next to Hugh Hefner, you know, the pornographer. So um, he was like, he was a little bit out what? of step. You didn't know that? I didn't know Hugh Hefner was the presidential nominee. Oh, for sorry. That. I mean, uh, not Hugh Hefner. Um, the other dude, uh, Larry Flynn. The other dude? I don't <laughs> even know who these porn tyrants. Isn't that his <laughs> name, Larry Flint? I'm not. I gotta Google Flint. it. I'm sorry. No, I don't know. You're right, Nick. It's, it's Larry Flint. Yeah. So yeah, he so he ran for the, uh, like a VP candidate for the Libertarian Party with Larry Flint, right? Um, but you know, before like you would get into, I do want to like like there is there is utility in reading these things. We shouldn't just read doctrines or ideology or tracts that agree with our principles. We should actually, you know, and I think that he's challenging the things that he proposes in here are tendencies that we see on. Uh, it, within indigenous movements, particularly towards anti-Marxism and anti-communism. And I would say that like even Karen Bedoni in her uh, movie, I don't know if it it's not in hers, but it's in a different Turning Point USA movie um, with a, a, a so-called native woman. She, it turned out that she wasn't native, but they, they play a clip of Russell Mean saying something to the akin that the Bureau of Indian Affairs is socialism, you know, it's failed socialism. And he's Speaking in in this congressional hearing, saying if you want to see failed socialism, come to an Indian reservation. Right. My so, favorite quote comes yeah. from the Infowars interview with Alex Jones, <laughs> and, and he goes, "America is a prison, just like the reservations are a prison." And it's like well, he's not wrong. The reservations are like, all right, wow, I get it. But like now you're trying to say that America is going to become a reservation. Yeah, and you get into this whole. Uh, so socialism is on the reservation argument from him yeah well, absolutely it sounds like he read foucault and it's just like prisons are everywhere <laughs> i doubt he read foucault <laughs> the the un the unedited manuscripts of russell means cites foucault wildly 
now I got to read where white men fear to tread and see if he said he studied Foucault. No, all. he didn't study Foucault. I don't think he did. <laughs> In September of, 19, of 1987, I moved from the poorest county in America, the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, to the richest area in the country, the Navajo Indian Reservation. There is no difference. I paraphrase the former secretary of the Department of the Interior, James Watt. If you want to see an example of failed socialism, go to an Indian reservation. The poorest and richest reservations in our nation suffer from identical problems. Mismanagement, a bloated patronage system, no checks and balances, and tribal government's waiver of sovereignty in order to initiate debt. This is not anything new. This is an everyday occurrence in all tribal governments. Problem is leadership. Um, but I think, like, it's, like it's it's important to return to you know this this piece, and I just want to you know read some passages from it and like talk a little bit about it because it, there are you know there are inconsistencies within you know uh, a more kind of like European dominated. Um, form of marxism and there is eurocentrism right um and i think that's what he's trying to critique in this in this particular piece eurocentrism and i think he like the logic doesn't hold up and it doesn't hold up for many reasons and i'll just you know i'll just read some quotes so like you know by attacking eurocentrism he's also eurocentric in his own framework right because europe then becomes a catch-all where marxism and capitalism are like reduced to equal kind of programs right not seeing that like Marxism didn't arise independently of capitalism. It actually rose in response to capitalism to get beyond and to move beyond that kind of stage of history, right? And it also assumes that Marxism or Marxist societies or left or socialist societies cleanly break from capitalism, right? And I, and I challenge people to imagine what, you know, for our indigenous listeners, what would a reservation look like if it immediately broke from capitalism, right? What would that look like? We probably, you know, we're not given the tools to imagine like a post-capitalist uh, world, but we, you know, uh, the idealist version of it would be we would return to our old, you know, our ways of living. We'd and become one. And prim it up. Yeah, we'd, and we'd be, damn it, you just ruined my punchline. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> was that really your punchline? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, it it's. Is it, this argument that he's making has a lot of appeal to this tendency of anarcho-primitivism, or I would just call it primitivism in general, right? Um, because it assumes that the transition to freedom, right? Freedom has to be this, it's like this, this maximalist approach that it means return that all European... <laughs> yeah, return to nature, return to our tradition, right? And I, it like it just historically hasn't played out that way for indigenous people for non-indigenous people right and so well, so this actually reminds me of uh the national study group's uh question last night they said you know what do you imagine like a future like a self-determined indian yeah. future would be and it's like joseph and i started talking about like what about like a buffalo autonomous zone like you start honoring animal nations again you know like yeah. just stuff like that like that's a more realistic thing than like Oh, we're gonna go back to a 
using lances on the buffalo. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I don't want to lance a buffalo. You could miss me on that. <laughs> well, it remind. I mean, it reminds me of like the the first documentary that was ever created was called Nanook of the North, and I can't remember the guy's name. I think his name is Flowerty, Flaherty, or something like that. And he's this like white anthro dude, and he went up there and staged these quote unquote dot like uh real life scenes of uh inuit people like hunting seals and he said oh no 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 put away your rifles put away your you know your snow machines and your chainsaws and everything and i want to see you hunt seals with you know harpoons and it was funny because they were just and they were like happily obliging because they're like yeah this is you know we still know how to do this but that's not how they hunted seal right they like changed right and they used like modern machinery to hunt but there what 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 happens within you know this idea of like how you know how we have a more just relations is we often fall into idealism which is for indigenous people is attached to primitivism and you can see the way that like left governments left socialist indigenous governments like the mas or the movement towards socialism in bolivia are attacked from the left quote unquote right because there's they're not supposed to engage in any form of extractivism they're not supposed to engage in any kind of like industry at all they're just supposed to be they're supposed to be you know living with nature and and if they're not then it's a failed socialist project right so that reminds me of uh while i was at david swallows like uh he he broke out the uh chainsaw to start cutting down you know the tree not not like the tree but like a a tree for uh what's it called the an EP fire and uh, he was like, okay, first you got to break out your traditional chainsaw, you know? And like, he always would make a <laughs> joke like that. With tobacco. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He would just make a joke like that. Cause he's like, you know, you don't, don't go like, think we got to be, you know, sitting bowl over here. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, we don't have to do that. We have the modern luxuries now. Why not use them to make our lives a little easier? Yeah. It's and, and like, you know, going back to Bolivia, it's like, I think it's a perfect example. It's like, they weren't given many options, right? They can't transition into like a green, sustainable economy right away because of resource colonialism that has existed. And, you know, they, it also is funny because it's coming from people who like drive to work every day and who are weighing in on what this movement should do. And it's like, they don't have to worry about where their food comes from, you know, because they live in the imperial core. Uh, but it also just assumes like, you know, the, another example is like we did a, a meeting about the Red Deal, and one of the uh, one of the demands that we talk a lot about because it was brought up in our community conversations was that a lot of um, indigenous people, you know, especially in the Navajo Nation, want roads built into their communities. And somebody was like, "Why do you want roads? I thought you were against oil and gas." And I just like looked at them and I was like, "They have there's like no understanding, you know, like that the." Like you can't get groceries in on the Navajo Nation without driving somewhere, right? No, and we're supposed to reclaim our natural trade route, like our original trade routes, and uh, start using those on foot again. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree. Sorry, I interrupted you. I apologize. Go for it. I mean, no, I mean, like, and that's the thing too is the what really made me irritated with this is that I saw folks who like we're starting to use those like the talking points between this anti-state status is also talking points that some left to share you know like oh the navajo nation is bad because it engages in this but it's like you know the 
material conditions at the moment, you know? And I think that question, it, it due to like the, the way that this discourse is going or the way that the, you know, at least within this Karen Bodoni discussion, it ends up like limiting what it even means, you know, like it eventually just limits things to like small businesses because as a response to like this, they start to build up this ideology of small business. Like, oh, we should invest in our people. And, you know, like it, it already hampers that question that you asked, which is like, well, what would the Navajo Nation or any indigenous nation within the U.S., you know, what what would it look like if it had full autonomy? Granted, you know, like, what would we like? Um, and, you know, and, and I think when we like, what I notice is that folks would be drawn into this discourse and then it, it would kind of get hampered by, uh, just like small businesses, discussions about how we should go about that, you know, microloans and whatnot. And it was like really disappointing to see like, damn, like, I don't know. Anyways, and, and then there was some discussions about how one white person was like, I went to the Navajo Nation a long time ago. They were starving and they didn't even have roads. And I prayed for them. And I was like, okay, you know, and then, yeah. So like it, it, it always just hampers, like it never allows folks to like, dream or to think beyond that it like limits the discourse to what i think is I mean, the other limits the discourse even politics to between party lines like oh democrats or republicans people then use this to like bring like bring up the democratic party to be like well look at this they're not as bad as them but it's like ah, it's kind of like the same thing and it makes it really hard to talk about these discussions of like liberation for indigenous peoples um but it does it does provide a lot of cringe to cringe at. Um, so I mean, but I, I generally agree with like the assessment going on, you know, so far. And I'm, I am learning a lot, so this is really informative for me too. Yeah, I think you know, in the the term I should actually define this. I should have defined this term before, but anti statism or anti status statism uh, comes from. I'm elaborating a little bit from Ruthie Gilmore's term from Golden Gulag, and that term is like. You know, just a quick explanation is like you have the right, right, that claims to be like anti-government or against big government and this and that, but you nonetheless invest heavily, and even neoliberalism to to a large degree, you know, even from the from the the liberal side, uh, invest heavily into state institutions like the police and the military, and they become cure-alls for everything, right? While social welfare programs and the idea of a welfare state is completely gutted. Like we we're not questioning why, you know, um, police officers are you know, or why the Department of Education has a SWAT team, right? Because there's been this militarization of life. Well, wait, that's a thing. Yeah, it does. The Department of Education has a SWAT team. Is that like a response to school shooters? Or I, like, what's the reasoning behind that? I don't Open know. Up. You didn't do your math homework. This is the SWAT team. <laughs> in. I mean, but the sad part is that might actually happen. So I well, Kamala joke. Harris has already suggested that parents who like let their kids not go to school should go, to, you know, jail. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it becomes like you know, like I remember. I think the perfect example of this, and this kind of relates to some of the work our comrades are doing up in Mini Luzahar, Rapid City, is that like the. You know, the, the police force there, the Rep City Police Force is notoriously racist and notoriously oh. like like bad, like for the indigenous community. I've been like profiled so many times. Um, but they, you know, they had these like community outreach programs of growing like community gardens and you just partner with the Rapid City Police Department. It's like, wait, why like why is the police department being 
used as like a way to grow community gardens? Why shouldn't there just be like resources available for them? You know, or like the Rapid City Police Department is being outsourced as like mental health counselors for people who are having, you know, episodes on the streets. And it's like, that's not their job. You know, so anti-statist statism is like the gutting of social welfare programs and like social services and the investment into the arms of class rule, which is, you know, the, what keeps in cl- place a class society isn't just pure ideology. It's actually the arms of the state that uphold that ideology, right? Which are the police and the military. And that's why we, we have this kind of like, you know, investment, hyper-investment. And, you know, by investment, I, be, I mean psychological as well as material investment into police officers. And the right, you know, be, being anti-state against the deep state, right? But nonetheless upholding like the police and the military. I don't know. Does that make sense, Marley? <laughs> it does. It does. Because like the... The way that they, the policies that Navajo Republicans, I, you know, I'm speaking, but like uh, that that I'm speaking about are are generally like that. Like they want to like limit funding, or they want to um, pull on a part. Like though they don't mention it, but they do talk about austerity measures, and right. and they're not like, but they don't necessarily say say it out loud. Granted, you know, I don't even think they've. Or at least Karen hasn't really thought that far as to what that means um, and what that would look like for the reservation, which already is hampered by a lot of like austerity measures to begin with. Um, so, you yeah, know, it, it makes sense. And I, I think I, I definitely want to reread that again. Um, the golden gulag. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, to kind of like point out, like, it's not just to be critical of, you know, Russell means, because I do think that there are elements in here that are like incredibly important. Like, and I'll, I'll just read, he talks about despiritualization, right? Of the universe. And this, you know, like cue the cheesy flute music. Don't circle time. No. Like, you know, like th- when you start talking about spirituality and indigenous people, like my white people just like tune out. They're like, oh my God, like they're going to say something spiritual. But I do think they almost associated a- with like hippieism. Yeah. I mean, it's new ageism, right? It's like that. I, I think he's like, he, he points something out that is, I think is incredibly important. And spirituality doesn't really capture the immense, like esoteric kind of knowledge of indigenous people and their relation to you know, the other than human realm, right? Um, but he, you know, he, there is a strain of like atheism, uh, like strident, like militant atheism that comes out of like the left and I understand it and I, I respect some of it. But at the same time, when we think of atheism today, we, I don't think of it as on the left. I actually think of it as part of like a neoliberal order, like specifically like Richard Dawkins, right? Uh, who are, chauvinists they're racist right they've taken atheism so atheism isn't itself this kind of like equal or uh you know socially just ideology right it's it's actually been used in and in, in more in the service of the right and uh like the neoliberals than it has been in you know for the left um but i think that the kind of devaluing of like indigenous knowledge is incredibly important that he points that out that marxists tradition or historically have been ignorant purposefully ignorant and derogatory towards indigenous knowledges and we're finding out that that you know um is just wrong-headed thinking because 
indigenous people do more for the planet than you know uh like a white leftist in brooklyn right <laughs> like like um no but there's zero waste yeah don't worry yeah so i mean but you know and this is a quote he says he says it is a materialist doctrine that despises the american indian spiritual tradition our cultures our life ways marx himself called us pre-capitalists and primitive pre-capitalist means that in his view we would eventually discover capitalism and become capitalist. We have always been economically retarded in Marxist terms or economically backward in Marxist terms. The only manner in which American Indian people could participate in a Marxist revolution would be to join the industrial system, to become factory workers or proletarians, as Marx called them. The man was very clear about the fact that his revolution could occur only through the struggle of the proletariat, that the existence of a mass industrial system is a precondition of a successful Marxist society. Okay, there's a lot to take <laughs> take in there, but I would say that um, there is a certain European chauvinism within, uh, not I wouldn't say Marxism in general, but just you know the way that indigenous cultures have you know kind of fallen outside of uh, like global thinking as backwards, right? And I would say that most Marxists use the term non-capitalist now, right, um, to say that. You know, Marxism, like not all, like even Ingalls came out later and was like, you know, not all indigenous or not all societies evolve into capitalism. That was never the point. They they were arguing about a world system, right? That capitalism, that what makes capitalism unique as a historical phenomenon and social system is that it became a world system, right? I think Lenin elaborated on this really well in Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. I was going to say, this is why everybody should read Lenin after they read Marx. really. <laughs> It really touches on this and clarifies a lot of it. <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean it's good, and um, you know the this other this other thing is that like we have always been economically backward in Marxist terms. I don't think that's necessarily true because if you read the ethnographic notes of Marx, Marx was very much you know he was like indigenous people are actually proof that capitalism isn't you know like isn't a isn't teleological. Not all it's not natural essentially it's not a natural phenomenon of social system right not all societies evolve towards or develop towards capitalism and i would say that like amilcar cabral uh the revolutionary marxist thinker would also agree he's like revolution for the third world is actually turning back that clock and to say what would our social development be had capitalism and imperialism not knocked us off that track right and he calls it returning to the source doesn't mean you go back in time he just says what are how do we develop according to our own values and needs our actual material needs and i was you know what's funny about that statement is that like you know uh russell means himself was indirectly influenced by Emilcar cabral in the sense that jimmy durham who was the international indian treaty council director or one of the leaders at the time in, in i've Geneva, never heard Virginia. somebody call him jimmy <laughs> i think isn't it jimmy it's well it's james but jimmy is the nickname you could call someone oh. named james so. I, I, just, I just read it in the historical archive as jimmy but wow i've never heard that it's like yeah, everybody so, calls him james so i mean like, the way the way nick said it sounded like nick was really good friends so i was like oh, okay there must be buddies or something yeah, like i was like man you really like gave him a real like wholesome <laughs> sounding name <laughs> well like 
I don't know. I, I, this is the problem when you like read things and you don't, I don't know. Anyways. Well, it's like Annie saying anime instead yeah. of anime. Anime. Like, yeah. Those like, things. like it's the personal friends of her well, call her anime, but you well, read you called, it so often. You called him Russ. You said in Russ. Oh, I said Russ. Yeah. Well, like my family knows <laughs> it. And stuff, so I'm like, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, anyways, like uh, Jimmy Durham was friends with Emil Carr Cabral and actually Jimmy Durham used that thinking of returning to the source and, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Emilcar Cabral also was like a guerrilla uh, thinker and, and strategist. And, you know, when he talked to a lot of these guerrilla movements elsewhere, they were like, he was like, what makes you successful? And they're like, oh, you have to go to the mountains. And he's like, you know, he lived in Guinea-Bissau and he's like, I, we don't have any mountains in Guinea-Bissau. And then he came up with this theory that, oh, the people are the mountain, right? That the people themselves, these these tribal people who have been least affected by Portuguese colonialism and still have that radical kind of potentiality of like being anti-colonial just by the mere fact that they are so on the fringes but suffer so much from the colonial system that they too will become the most revolutionary element. They are the mountains, right, for the, the revolution, the anti-colonial revolution against the Portuguese. And for American Indian movement people, elders became the mountain, right? Because they were still keeping alive those traditions and they were the most resistant to colonial kind of like imposition of the Indian Reorganization Act, right? Or the kind of Indian policies, right? They kept alive the treaty councils and that's where the treaty council idea came from. And so there's an interesting kind of thing here and to kind of get to the rest of this quote, it is funny because he says the only manner in which American Indian people could participate in Marxist revolution would be to join the industrial system to become factory workers or proletarians. And that's actually true. Like he's actually answering his own critique that in fact, like under capitalism, one's relation uh, to production defines one's revolutionary potential, right? So indigenous people they're not maybe the like proletarianization does happen. And I would say that the majority of indigenous people are proletarians. Russell means himself was a pro he was proletarianized in the process of, uh, um, Indian relocation, right? He was moved to an industrial core city and yeah, he became an accountant. Yeah. He <laughs> became an accountant. Right. And he did join a revolutionary movement. He was, he was politicized by his relation to capital. So like, that is true. Like they're only, you don't like if, capitalism didn't come then we wouldn't need a revolution right <laughs> like the, so he answers his own question there um so those are you know those are just some of the things that I, you know i thought about in um in this particular piece and i i want to i want to just kind of end with two two sort of uh quotes from him because i think it gets us to the the reason why we had this podcast and why we're thinking about socialism and uh, indian reservations um, he, he writes, you know, I did not believe that capitalism itself uh, is re really responsible for the situation of American Indians um, and, and, or a situation in which American Indians have been declared a national sacrifice. No, it's the European tradition. European culture itself is responsible. And then he goes on to claim that he's not, um, you know, a leftist, but or, a, you know, just a, like a, um, a kind of revolutionary, but he calls himself a cultural nationalist, right? And cultural nationalism is funny to me because um, white supremacists are cultural nationalists, right? White nationalists are cultural nationalism. White nationalism or white nationalist comes from a cultural nationalist perspective, right? And what that does and why 
I think it's it's something that needs to be combated and why we have these kind of wrongheaded views about socialism and, and government intervention is that it erases class, right? It collapses class in the sense that a white supremacist, you know, or a white nationalist, to use the media's term, who works at a convenience store, you know, believes that he has more in common with the president of the United States, who's like a billionaire real estate developer in New York City, than he does with his fellow like black or indigenous worker, right? And that's where cultural nationalism falls flat on its face because it it it's it's an introverted kind of framework that doesn't account for class struggle. And it actually reduces anti-colonial struggle to a, na- a culturalist struggle versus an actual material struggle to understand oppressed nations within a kind of larger class system of imperialism, right? And the final thing I want to say about that is that I do, you know, again, as, as much as it's important to read this and to understand the nuances of what, you know, Russell Means is saying, and even to disagree with him, it is important to understand that indigenous theory and indigenous knowledge isn't antithetical to Marxism and socialism, right? Because whether or not we were introduced to Marxism or socialism, we still have an organic response to the, the conditions of oppression, right? That is true in any situation where people where people are are oppressed. That doesn't mean that indigenous people are just like the early phase of Marxism or socialism. You do need theory. You do need intervention to make sense of the world, right? And that's why Marxism is important because it shows that indigenous knowledge is correct and an indigenous theory of these conditions is correct. But all it does is it elaborates them to a larger framework of the capitalist world system and to show that we are not unique in our situations here, right? We have everything in common with other people who have been colonized by the United States or imperialist powers. We, the imperialist system that was imposed upon us was later opposed upon the rest of the world, right? And so in that sense, you can't have a revolution within North America without actually addressing indigenous knowledge and indigenous history and indigenous theory, right? And it gets back to somebody like Meriategui, who was a Peruvian Marxist, who said that the root of socialism, of a socialist revolution in the Americas, would be indigenous. And so too with the trunk of that tree, right? They, he wasn't interested in importing the you know, the, the revolution of, of, the, of, of the Soviets in Russia in 1917 to the, uh, to the Western Hemisphere because it didn't make sense in these material conditions. The material conditions were that of colonialism, right? And colonialism is, is embedded in, th- in the land. And the, this, the, the system of private property created by the capitalist system is also embedded in the land, right? There are social relations of the European capitalist system that was imported here that are premised on exclusion and private property ownership. But there are also competing visions of governance and ideas of what the land can and should be or what was, you know. And to say that, um, to say that like indigenous people uh, were once owners or that, you know, they, you know, they, if we, if we go back to giving indigenous people back the land, that they're going to do things to us, what we did to them, fundamentally misunderstands history. 
and it actually imposes a, a people without history point of view on indigenous people because it ignores what came before private property. It ignores what will come after private property, right? And so that's what I think is is like important to draw from this. You know, there is a kernel I think of like uh, indigenous thought that needs to be extrapolated out to understand not only the past of indigenous societies but the future of indigenous societies that is non-capitalist, right? And you know, we may have varying degrees of what that will look like and what it what it is, but suffice it to say um, that in this moment in time and in this system of you know, the system of governance, we it's not socialist. <laughs> Indian reservations are not socialist. Ding, ding, ding. Um, but if they were socialist, there would be no reservation, right? <laughs> there would be no demarcation of territory as solely indigenous or confining people to certain places, right? And so I think um, I think we've done a very good job. I, I want to turn it over to you two to take us out um, of kind of debunking this idea of indigenous uh, or Indian reservations as socialist. I don't know if anyone has any concluding thoughts. I was just going to say that like uh, with the whole um, like mentioned the particular like uh, material conditions and why you can't export your revolution. Everybody should go read that now. I feel like this podcast perfectly explains it. I don't know. <laughs> like we solved it right here. Yeah, damn, we solved it. Everybody, yeah. self determination. Oh. Starting. No, I, I <laughs> go home. I, We're done. This is it. This is the last podcast episode. Nothing after. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, no, I, I, I think you know, it's for me, it, it's definitely not socialist. I mean, yeah, it might have some like welfare te- like characteristics, but it's not socialist. And even the fact that they're just disregarding history or misreading even what it means. Uh, misattributing it, in my opinion, is like just like it. They, I don't know. It's it's it, it it demonstrates to me how persistent the ideology of like capitalism and colonialism operates to the point where you have, you know, as like, that example you gave earlier, where like a Navajo woman, small business owner, thinks Trump's on her side. You know mm-hmm. that they're like in the same relation almost, and that they're fighting for the same thing, and it's it, it's hard to combat that. Um, but I think it does require like the education and or educating and like talking to folks about what this means and really um, breaking down their arguments. And, you know, for me, like I, the, the moment I saw the Webster's dictionary definition, I was like, ah, oh, shit. All right, here we go again. You know, <laughs> you lost the argument. At that <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, do not pull, you know, and, you know, I, I, you know, friends of mine have tried to reach out to her and like, talk to her, you know, and, you know, try to debate and to like, see what this is about. But, you know, to know Val, she's not willing to do that. And, you know, for me, like, yeah, seeing the Webster's Dictionary, even like the basis understanding of like socialist definitions given by like Marx, it's just like, doesn't add up. Like, you know, and it's, it's larger boogeyman, like straw man argument of socialism, which is government. You know, and it's like no, and 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 the like, lot the the inconsistencies in the arguments is also just like one of the issues that, like, for me, I'm like, ah, this is this is a larger issue of breaking, like, working against ideology. Um, so, anyways, that's that's my little spiel about it. We'll see what happens if I get blocked. If I get blocked, I get blocked. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I stay watching. <laughs> yeah, because Karen Bedoni is 
our number one listener to our podcast, and I think we just lost the. Pa- I think we just lost. You just lost the biggest Patreon. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, I I just want to say thank you. Like, um, I learned a lot from all of this. I I, I really appreciated the the analysis um, that was given after you know by uh, Zikato. You know, I never thought this would be <laughs> applicable. I was just thinking small business owner. God damn it! <laughs> like, come on. Oh, there's a stereotype I like to describe as the. Um, Oh, what do I call him? The tradi- traditional uncle. And that's like, a, you know, you go on the res and this guy is like the kind of guy that's like, oh, a, a real, you know, Lakota man is a guy who, uh, you know, yells at his wife to go get him coffee. You know, it's that kind of a guy that encapsulates these thoughts. You Yeah, yeah. So I, and, and, and like all the, the back history, I think there's a lot of um, arguments that I, I, I agree with. And um yeah, so I appreciate it. It was very informative. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I, you know, to kind of close it out, I guess, like, on a hopeful note, is that, like, you know, indigenous societies, because they've existed so long as non capitalist societies, you know, their mode of production was non capitalist and non exploitative in the in, when compared to the capitalist mode of production, right? Which privatizes and commodifies nature as well as human beings, living organisms for profit we've developed a very robust culture and i don't i don't mean like culture in like the woo 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 kind of way of like you know like people putting on feathers for white people i mean like actual culture that that was our life way right that was developed in relation to our material world right the animals the plants the rocks you know the water that shared that space with us that we had to make relations with. We developed complex languages, ideas and histories and relations, stories, right? With these, these landscapes, we've only been living under capitalism for, you know, some of us for only a century and a half. Right. And some of our, even our grandparents or even our parents in some instances are only, we're only one generation removed from subsistence ways of life. And it's not to glorify subsistence ways of life, but we have it within our literal DNA and family trees of knowing what it's like to live without capitalism and to live, you know, in correct relations and just an attempt to live in just, just relations. And that's where my idealism comes in, I guess, is like, we should aspire to live in correct relations, right? To be a good relative is an aspiration, right? Um, that you can't really fulfill in one's life. But as like Edward Galliano um, said one time, and I'll, I'll paraphrase him, it's not utopia. It's not that we're trying to achieve utopia because every time we get close to it in human progress, we set the goal line further to the horizon, right? So that we aspire to be better relatives always. And even though we've lived under capitalism and they've distorted some of our, our traditions and our culture and our value systems, we nonetheless hold that those values arose from a non-exploitative way of life and one that aspired to being a good relative. And that's what makes indigenous people i would say um a vanguard so to speak of uh, anti-capitalist and you know hopefully one day socialist uh struggle in in this land in particular damn that's a good closer we should there should be like an ideal segment wherever you just like all right everybody unload That'd be very helpful. <laughs> Yodid <laughs> should totally have that when we just like go off into idealist spiels. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm going to stop I'm recording. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank <laughs> you.